It's good to be together. It's nice to see members of our youth group back with us. I missed you guys last week. Nice to have you back. Uh, we're continuing in our series this morning, an eight-week series in the book of Genesis, centered around the life of Joseph. I hope by now you've read Genesis 37 to 50 in its entirety to get a sense of the story. Today we're going to look at Genesis 42. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 42. We're going to look uh, at that chapter in a message I've entitled, uh, What Has God Done? As you remember, the, uh, or as you may remember, the overall title is God Meant It for Good. And today we're going to look at, uh, and I got that one, the wrong one. What is this that God has done? That's what I wanted. So, Mark, that's the wrong set. So we'll just leave it. That's last week's set. If you can get it, fine. If not, uh, just let me know. So uh, the title of today is, What is this God has done? And you'll see that when we, uh, when we get through this passage. So where are we so far? The Lord has been with Joseph as he was sold into slavery into Egypt by his brothers and as he was thrown into prison because of false accusation. The Lord was, was with Joseph as he was quickly elevated, released from prison, interprets Pharaoh's dreams and indicating seven years of famine or seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine, after which he's appointed second in command in Egypt to administrate the collection of grain during the years of abundance to be stored up for distribution during the years of famine. Last week we saw how God has been working, has been moving in Joseph's life behind the scenes and to, to transform him, to mold him into the man he needed to be for the work that God had for him. This week, we're going to see that God is working behind the scenes as well, but in more than Joseph's life, God is also working in the lives of Joseph's brothers and in the life of his father, Jacob, to transform their lives from brokenness to wholeness. So as before, we're going to go through the story. We'll make some observations as we go through chapter 42. Then we'll circle back to draw some application for us, which by God's grace will be helpful. Uh, before we do that, I'd like to just pause again and uh, pray. Dear Father, as we come to this time of our gathering together, we desire to hear from you. So we ask that through the weakness of the messenger, through the truth of the message, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, what we know not, teach us, what we have not, give us, and what we are not, make us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we start our story today in, in Genesis 42 with uh, in the land of Canaan. And I'm going to start reading verses... Uh, Jack in chapter 41, verse 56, and go down to uh, chapter 42, verse 5. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. 
Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine that was in the land of Canaan. Pretty straightforward. Jacob's family is also experiencing this worldwide famine that has occurred. They somehow learn that there is grain for sale in Egypt, so Jacob sends 10 of his sons to Egypt for food. Just a little interlude as I was thinking about this. Laura will occasionally get upset with me when we're watching a movie or some other program because there have been times that something will happen and I will predict what's coming next based on something that's what was said or something that happened. Uh, I won't give you her exact words. But I'm no genius. I'm just aware that an author controls the telling of a story by inserting relevant facts at appropriate times to further the cause of the story, perhaps to heighten tension, to raise a question, or to set you up for what's coming. A good author is a master at using words and wastes nothing. Well, verse 4 is such a verse for us. It's a simple explanation of fact that in reality sets us up for what is coming later, even through the next couple chapters. Verse 4 says, But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brothers, brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Notice the author makes sure we remember that this is Joseph's brother. He did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother. That is the only other child of Rachel, Jacob's favorite of his four wives. Since Rachel died in childbirth with Benjamin, and Jacob believes Joseph to be dead, Benjamin is the remaining survivor and is closest to Jacob's heart. Jacob has a deep fear of losing him. So the favoritism continues. With Joseph gone, Benjamin has become the treasured one, which means that Jacob has no problem sending his 10 other sons to Egypt. He obviously does not have the same level of concern for them that he has for Benjamin. And I'm sure that the brothers remain very aware of this ongoing favoritism. This fact becomes the major theme that God uses to help this family, to rescue this family, and we'll start seeing that today um, and into next week. All right, so next is the trip to Egypt. I'm going to read now verses 6 to 28 as these brothers find themselves in Egypt. So this will take a few minutes. Let's read this. Read, read along with me as, as I read so we can get the drift of the story. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you 
and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you to not sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? People from all over the world are coming to Egypt to buy food from Joseph. Joseph's brothers are just ten more added to the long line of people waiting their turn to speak with Joseph. And I can imagine, Joseph, you're very welcome, Mr. Jones. May God bless you, and please come back when you need more food. We're happy to be able to provide for you. I don't know if any Egyptians were named Mr. Jones, but that's the best I could do. We're happy to be able to provide for you. Next, imagine Joseph's shock when he turns to the next person in line to see his brothers not just standing in front of him, but bowing down to him. Talk about totally unexpected. In the next two seconds before he addresses them, I imagine the events of the last 20 years flash through his mind. His father's favoritism, his fancy cloak, their hatred of him, their plan to kill him, their decision to sell him into slavery, the subsequent slavery in Potiphar's house, imprisoned because of false accusations, forgotten by the cupbearer, and now elevated to second in command to the most power, in the most powerful country in the world. And he remembers his dreams 20 years earlier, for which they hated him and mocked him and finally sold him into slavery. And here they are, bowing down to him in a literal fulfillment of those dreams. How is he going to respond to this totally unexpected and shocking turn of events. Well, now imagine the brother's shock when they come respectfully to ask the man in charge for food, just like everyone else before them. He speaks to them harshly and accuses them of being spies. Totally unexpected. And in spite of their honest defense, he continues to insist that they are spies, accusing them four times in those few verses. He states that they will all stay in prison while one of them can go back home 
to bring their missing brother to Egypt to prove the truthfulness of their story. Well, what is Joseph doing here? Well, there's no indication that I can see that he had worked out a plan ahead of time in case he ever saw them again. Well, if they ever come, this is what I'm going to say, this is what I'm going to do. I think he's caught totally off guard with totally unexpected circumstances, and he's now thinking on his feet. Well, why put them in prison? Well, that's easy. He needed time to think. <laughs> why accuse them of being spies? Well, not so easy to figure out. But I think we can safely assume that God gave him that idea in the spur of the moment to set up what God wants to accomplish. Joseph had no way of knowing how this was going to play out. But I believe God is continuing to work behind the scenes to lead Joseph in the heat of the moment, even with this idea of accusing them as spies. Well, on the third day, after some time to think about it, Joseph releases his brothers from prison, and he refines his plan. He says, only one of you needs to stay in prison. The rest can go home with food for your households and then return with your youngest brother. Well, if you were the brothers, how would you respond in this situation? What is going on here? Why is this happening to us? Surprise, shock, confusion, disbelief? But they knew exactly what was happening, or at least they thought they knew what was happening. We saw that in verses 21 and 22. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. They were convinced that all of this was coming against them because of their sin against Joseph 20 years ago. They had a strong sense of justice that every evil deed deserved a just punishment. And they were obviously carrying around this heavy weight of this unresolved guilt for the past 20 years, just waiting for the hammer of justice to come down on their lives. And here it was, or so they thought. Well, Joseph sends nine of them back home. He selects Simeon from them and ties them up in their sight. I guess we would say he put them in handcuffs. He graciously provides three things for the remaining nine brothers to take home. He gives them the grain that they originally came for, but he returns their money to them, unbeknownst to them, and he gives them extra food for their journey. Then later that day when they stop for the night, one of them finds his money in his sack. They immediately, instead of seeing this as good news, they see this as very bad news. At the very least, they could be accused of stealing the grain, of not paying for it, the author here says their hearts failed them. They lost heart. They lost inner strength and confidence, so much so that they were physically shaken. Have you ever been so afraid of something that you were trembling? Things are just going from bad to worse. They are now totally innocent in this matter, but now they are consumed with guilt and fear. And their conclusion we see in verse 28 at the end, what is this? that God has done to us. What is this that God has done to us? This is the first time in the whole story that God has been mentioned by these brothers. Their recent experiences have led them to the only logical conclusion. These difficult and strange circumstances are so extraordinary that only God could be at the center of it all. What is this that God has done to us? 
Well, back home in Canaan, we pick that up in verses 29. I'm going to read those verses 29 to the end of chapter 42. When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land." As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All of this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Verses 29 to 34, basically the brothers give a summary of their trip. We're not going to say anything more about that now. We've already talked about what that trip was about. But as they are there, things get worse for the brothers. They thought it was bad. It gets worse. Each one of them now opens their sack and finds their money. Now their fear is ramped up several fold. Things also get worse for Jacob. As he recognizes the implications of what they came back with, his answer is, you have bereaved me of my children. That is, you have made me childless. Joseph is no more, he says. Well, that's not true, but he had no way of knowing that. To his mind, Joseph was dead. Simeon is no more. Well, that's definitely not true, because they said Simeon was in prison. The Lord of the land was holding him in custody till Benjamin was brought to Egypt. But to Jacob, Simeon was as good as dead because he was not willing to take the risk of sending Benjamin to Egypt. He states that if something happened to Benjamin, he would die as a result of it. He's already lost one of his favorite sons. He can't tolerate the loss of another. As I've said before, I think we must be careful not to underestimate the pain caused by the loss of a child or a grandchild. If you've ever been there, you know that pain never really goes away. However, we get a look at how paralyzing and self-focused Jacob's grief has become. He says in verse 38, For his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. The only one left? Here is that favoritism raising its ugly head again. He just stated clearly that of his 11 remaining sons, Benjamin is the one that matters the most to him. How do you think the 10 other brothers felt about that when he says he is the only one left. I think we get a picture of their reaction with Reuben's offer. Remember that Reuben is Jacob's oldest son, his firstborn, but he never received the privileges that are supposed to come along with being the firstborn. 
Reuben says in verse 37, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. What? Reuben, what are you thinking? Dad, if Benjamin does not survive the trip to Egypt, you can kill my two sons. That is, two of your grandsons. Now that's helpful. I don't see a legitimate offer here. I suggest we see a son who is angry with his father's irrational wallowing and so proposes an extreme and bizarre solution. We can only surmise that the other brothers felt the same way. Jacob's bottom line we see in verse 36. All this has come against me. All this has come against me. Notice how similar this is to the brother's earlier statement in verse 28. What is this that God has done to us? In the same way as his sons, Jacob believed that everything that God was bringing into his life was against him, not for him. All of this has come against me. Well, let's take a closer look at how Joseph responds to these same difficult and confusing circumstances. Well, what is the situation when his brothers first appear before Joseph in Egypt? We've reviewed that. Joseph has been ripped from his home and family, sold into slavery in Egypt. He suffered through 13 years of slavery in Potiphar's house and imprisonment under false accusation, all because of these 10 men who are now bowing before him. And now here he stands, second in command in the strongest nation in the world, with absolute authority to do whatever he wants with them. By all rights, he would not be faulted for venting his anger and taking full revenge on these brothers. I can imagine it. Well, hello, gentlemen. <laughs> Do you know who I am? Surely you remember me, Joseph, the one you were going to kill and then sold into slavery. Remember those dreams? Well, here we are. This is your lucky day. Guards, take them and put them in prison till I figure out a fitting punishment. We would not fault him for that kind of reaction. But he doesn't do that. There is no sense anywhere here of anger or resentment, of getting even, taking revenge. Rather than seeking revenge, he's seeking reconciliation. One of his most telling responses we see in verses 21 and 24. Remember, they were speaking of their guilt in front of Joseph, but because he was speaking Egyptian and there was an interpreter between them, they thought he couldn't understand. And as they were sharing their guilt over what they had done to him, what does he do in verse 24? He turned away from them and wept. He turned away from them and wept. He entered into their suffering. He felt their pain. He grieved with them over the weight of their guilt. He did not condemn them. He wept with them and for them. Then we see him showing great kindness as he sends the nine of them home with abundant provisions for them and their families. And we also see patience on Joseph's part. He did not know how long it would take for their food to run out, so he initiated a plan that could take months to work out. Well, as we move towards application of this passage to our lives, I find it very helpful 
to compare the different statements that defines everyone's perspective on their circumstances. Both Joseph's brothers and Jacob were viewing their experiences through an incorrect view of God's presence and work in their lives, much as we often do. I know I do frequently, and this has been a sobering challenge for me in preparing this lesson as I applied it to my own life. How often do I look at my difficult life experiences through an incorrect view of God's presence and work? Well, the brothers, as we saw, ask in verse 28, what is this that God has done to us? What is this that God has done to us? What is this that God has done to us? What is this that God has done to us? They acknowledge that God is somewhere in the middle of what's happening to them, but they are convinced that whatever God is doing, it is bad, and he is doing it to them. They are so consumed by their guilt that they believe they are getting exactly what they deserve for their past wrongdoings, and now they are living with a constant fear that God is going to punish them. Perhaps you, like these brothers, assume that any time difficult or confusing events enter your life, God is punishing you for some wrongdoing, whether or not you can even remember what that wrongdoing might have been. Well, in verse 36, Jacob states, all of this has come against me. Before we go on, I was reminded of a humorous illustration. Author Ashley Brilliant once said, you know, I try to take one day at a time, but sometimes several days attack me at once. We sort of get the sense that that's what's uh, happening with Jacob here. He's just seeing problem after problem after problem, piling and piling and piling. Seriously, Jacob has a deep grief that comes from legitimate losses that were deep and painful. But because of that, he is living with a constant fear of further loss. And he responds by trying to control all his circumstances to minimize the risk of loss, because everywhere he turns, all this has come against me. You see, both Jacob and his sons are so controlled by their fears that when bad things happen to them, they have a fear that God is against them, that he is doing things to them and not for them. Isn't this where we often live as well? I know I do. When God brings difficult things, confusing things, disruptive things into our lives, don't we often view those things with the fear that God is somehow against us, not for us? What is this that God has done to me? We assume that God is punishing us, often for things we can't even remember doing. Or we've had so many losses, people, possessions, positions, health, money, relationships, that we proclaim like Jacob, all this has come against me. And we're just waiting for the next negative news to arrive. Therefore, we find ourselves waiting for the next bad thing to happen, convinced that in ways we don't understand, God is against us, that somehow he is out to get us. But let's look at what Joseph says, and we look at that in verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. 
Like his brothers and his father, Joseph also has a fear that is controlling his life when responding to these difficult and confusing circumstances. But unlike his brothers and his father, he lives with a fear of God that is a positive fear, an awareness that God is involved in every aspect of his life for good. Paul Tripp defined fear of the Lord as this. Fear of the Lord means that I carry around with, with me such a deep awareness, awe, and reverence for the power, holiness, wisdom, and grace of God that I would not think of doing anything other than living for his glory. Do we carry around with us such a deep awareness, awe, and reverence for the power, holiness, wisdom, and grace of God that we would not think of doing anything other than living for his glory? For our passage today, what would fearing God look like? Well, fearing God is realizing I do not need to know everything because I know he does. Fearing God is realizing that the reason I don't know everything is because he's chosen to not tell me. Fearing God is entrusting the control of my life to him, especially when I don't understand what is going on. I don't know about you, but this is a hard place for me to get to and to stay there. And because of Joseph's healthy fear of God, he was able to extend grace to his brothers. Grace, as we know, is not giving people what they deserve. He could show grace toward his brothers because he was aware of the grace he had received from God. Remember that touching example we saw back in Genesis 41, verses 51, 52? That's where he named his sons. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. In the naming of these sons, he expressed deep gratitude for what God had done for him. And because of the grace that God had shown him, he was able to extend grace to his brothers. As I reflect on Joseph and his family, as we see in Genesis 42, I'm reminded of Romans 8, 31 to 35. I'd invite you to turn there as I just spend a couple moments reflecting on these verses. Paul asks some questions of his own about God's presence in the lives of his children. Romans 8, starting at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer to that is no one. Nothing. And we can know that God is for us because he did not spare his own son from suffering and death for us. Jesus died on the cross for us. Jesus rose from the dead to bring us new life. And he's now at the right hand of God praying for us for our good. 
regardless of what life looks like, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can know that God will graciously give us all things. And we can know that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. God will always be for us and not against us. Always. Next week's message will be brought by Phil Garriman from Genesis 43. And there we're going to see the continuation of God's work that he put into motion here in chapter 42. And as we've been saying, Genesis 37 to 50 is not merely a story about Joseph and his family. It is a story about the mystery of God working in broken places. It's a story about a great savior who works in mysterious ways to rescue his people and accomplish his great purposes. Working in the deep, dark and quiet places of the sinful, broken human heart and sinful, broken families. This is a story about a great savior who died for your guilt, who enters your grief to reconcile, to reconcile you to himself by his grace that you may live with a healthy fear of God. So what is this that God has done? What God has done is that he is always with you, always at work behind the scenes for his glory and your good, whether as an individual, whether as families, or even as our church family. I'm sure we can look back and say, God, what are you doing? What is this that God has done to us? All of this has come against us. God wants us to know that what he has done, he is always with us, always at work for his glory and our good. When the hard things of life happen, we can learn to speak truth to ourselves. And thank you, Wade, for that reference before. Because we always speak something to ourselves, it's important that we learn to speak truth to ourselves. Because of this, we can say that God's actions toward you are always rooted in his goodness, in his grace. Rather than asking, what is this thing that God is doing to me? You can speak that whatever God is doing, he is doing it for you, always for your good. Rather than stating all this has come against me, you can say that because of Jesus, God is never against you, never. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder that you are always for us and never against us. Help us to believe that when the difficult things come to our lives, we can know that whatever it is you are doing, you are doing it for us, not to us. Help us to rest in the knowledge that everything good comes from you and only good comes from you. In ways we do not understand, even the things that look bad to us come to us from your good hand. May you help us to believe that, to live in that, and to trust you in that with a fear of God that seeks to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.